just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to Spectator Books podcast. Now, unfortunately, even books editors have to go on holiday sometimes. So the usual podcast is going to be taking a hiatus for a couple of weeks. But so that there's not a gaping gap in your life where the podcast once was, we're bringing out a couple of our old favourites to tide you over these summer months. This summer, Mick Heron has published the latest of his Jackson Lamb novels, Joe Country. It's a terrific read, as I can testify having reviewed it myself. So what better time to look back to the conversation I had with Mick about his Jackson Lamb spy novels back a summer and a bit ago. Hello and welcome to the Spectator Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by Mick Heron, the author of now five spy novels in the Jackson Lamb series, which have been acclaimed kind of almost universally as as the great new thing in spy writing and festooned with so many prizes and medals he clanks. The latest one is London Rules. Mick, welcome. Thanks, Sam. Hi. And... What are London rules? Oh, well, nobody knows. They're not written down anywhere. So um, I decided that um, London rules were the kind of unwritten laws of how one goes about doing things in in politics, essentially, not just espionage in London. And rule one, which isn't written down everywhere, anywhere, but everybody knows, just reads, cover your ass. So much of what happens in the novel London rules is about people passing the buck for things that, that have happened. There's a phrase in it, political fear. Political fear is the fear that the blame for something bad might happen on one of the people present at any given meeting. <laughs> that sort of idea of, you know, cock-ups and cover-ups thing seems to kind of go right through the, these novels. For those who don't know them, can you give a sort of brief sketch of who are the slow horses and what is Slough House? Because your sort of central, you know, the central sort of organisation in this is not quite proper spies. They're kind of cashiered spies, aren't they? Indeed not. It, uh, Slough House is described frequently as an administrative oubliette of the Secret Service. Slough House is a run-down building near the Barbican, towards the east end of London, and it's where those who've uh, messed up their careers in the Secret Service proper get sent. Messed up either because they have personal issues of one sort or another, or because they've left a top-secret documents or discs or laptops on in the back seats of cabs or on trains, which has happened so often since I first started writing these books, and I should have patented it, I think. <laughs> so it's all the various oddballs, really, people who have issues of drug dependency, alcoholism, gambling addiction, uh, yes, anger a lot management of addiction issues. Is, a lot of addiction. But they, for some reason or other, they can't be sacked because the service doesn't want to end up in front of uh, an employment tribunal, largely. Um, they get sent to Slough House instead, and there they're given a lot of demeaning and boring jobs to do in the hope that they will give up and walk away rather than cause any further trouble. But, of course, these people all um, are frustrated James Bonds, really, so they all dig their heels in and stay there in the hope of something exciting happening. And, of course, exciting things do happen, but technically they're not supposed to, not in slime years. And the sort of ringmaster of this off-key circus is this character Jackson Lamb, who's kind of... Well, he's, he's got these Homeric traits, but most of them are to do with, you know, farting and stubbing out cigarettes and pricks of tea. He's a sort of very memorable anti-hero... He, he is. He was never intended to be the central character in the series, but as soon as I started writing him, I realised that there were 
opportunities there and that it could be great fun to write about a character who had... Essentially, he's got no boundaries. He's deliberately very anti-PC. He will say the worst possible thing in any given situation, which makes him sound a bit like you know a David Brent character, except that he does it deliberately. He knows full well what he's doing. He has a kind of savage license in his behaviour. And he's obviously... I mean, he has a past, but the past isn't made clear in the books. He's a character that I write from the outside. All the other characters I tend to write from the inside out, so you know what they're thinking and feeling. With Lamb, you, you hear what he says and see what he does, but you never know what he's thinking or feeling. I've kept him at a remove to allow for, I suppose, an air of, of mystery about him, which is partly because I haven't fully decided what his past is and how much of what's happened to him has, has created the person that he is now. He's sort of a goodie, I suppose, but there is this quality that, that you know all these guys are, are you know mess ups and they've screwed up and so on. But Lamb actually is your sort of basic super spy disguised as a kind of down at heel Timothy Spall, isn't he? Kind of, yes. I I see him, and I think he perhaps sees himself as shop floor promoted to management. I mean, his heart is with the Joe, to use Le Carre's word, with the agent in the field, with the person who's actually puts him or herself in danger in order to get things done. He's not doing that anymore. He has done in the past. Instead, he's running a desk. But his sympathies are not with those who run desks who are largely or frequently operating to their own agendas and are more concerned about their own careers than about those who actually do the dangerous stuff. So he's kind of like, he doesn't have, I don't think, a heart of gold, but he has a moral code and he will act on that. And one of the fun things about the books, for me, writing them is slowly edging him into a position where he has to sort of act on those principles he has, <laughs> rather than just stay in his room farting. <laughs> it's just every now and again you get a little flicker of, you know, when a Joe's in the wind, he's... That sort of thing, yeah. I mean, actually, you, you said he's sort of come to take inched in centre stage, because I noticed they have started calling them the Jackson Lamb series, and I thought when they started they were the sort of Slough House series. They were, and I must admit I still think of them as the Slough House novels, but um, for reasons to do with marketing, John Murray decided to take Lamb as the focal character and they were right to do so I mean with since I've been published by John Murray the series has garnered the success that it's had it's it's thanks to the work that they've done so I have no Some problems at done, all I think, with as well, well indeed but I was doing that before anyway without uh, you know to know no acclaim whatsoever yeah. I'm perfectly happy with the way they're marketing now, the books it does seem to fit well not quite into but at one side from a sort of tradition of spy writing which is about the sort of the hub of people you know it's a kind of almost not quite a soap opera but you know you've got a cast of characters rather than the sort of lone spy who's out in the field you've got the sort of the office you know the building is a lot of it and one thinks obviously Le Carre's The Circus mm-hmm. and maybe Spooks as well which has that thing of you know the hub or whatever they call it in Spooks. I can't remember what they called it but yes I, I know. Um, the, the Grid. grid. The, the Grid. grid. That's, that's it yes. Did you sort of think let's let's Consciously, let's sort of take that set up and people it with fuck-ups. I consciously wanted to write about a group of people rather than an individual. My earlier novels had focused on single characters, by and large. So I wanted to write an ensemble piece, and various other things fed into that to create the the scenario that I came up with. One was location. I mean, Slough House is is a real building. It's very near where I used to work, near the Barbican. For some reason, it caught my attention, and I decided I was going to use that as a as a location. I hadn't realised I was going to spend, 
you know, what's so far has been about 10 years of my creative life focused what's on actually, it. What actually is it? I, mean, I have no idea. I mean, it's a, there's a row of shops not far from Barbican Tube Station. If you read the books, you can locate it. I had an email from an American reader last week who sent me a photograph. He said he'd been in London lately and, uh, and was this Slough House? And it was. <laughs> and not only was that, it was, it was taken from the same location where I'd taken a series of photographs uh, that I keep for research, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, you can identify the place. And I'm, I don't know. I mean, if anybody actually working there, whatever it is, were to read one of these books, they'd know I was writing about their building. <laughs> I'm not sure what will happen then. And so there was that. There was a location. There were, you know, various other events like the, the bombs in 2005, which made me realise that writing about, you know, huge terror events or about, you know, geopolitics was something that was more available, if you like, than I had thought it was. These aren't things that are happening on the other side of the world. These don't happen you know, at a distance. They're there. They're there in, in the world we move through when we're on our way to work. You know, you can become involved in these things, like it or not. Suddenly we're all part of it. And that was a bit of an eye-opener for me in that way. And it made, it made that world seem open to me to write about in a way that it hadn't before. I mean, I'm not an expert on on politics or, or world event. You know, I listen to Radio 4 and that's about it. You obviously have some fun putting... So, I mean, in London Rules, for instance, there's a, you know, a very ambitious kind of cabinet minister who's ridden to power on the coattails of Brexit and has a wife who's a newspaper columnist and so forth. These are people of... will go through going, oh, that's a bit of Michael Gove and a bit of Nigel Farage and this is a bit like... You know, I mean, you... They're sort of composite characters, yes, but I mean that's largely because with this book in particular, I was writing about a very real political backdrop—the backdrop of farce and chaos that we've all had to live with for the past two years. So inevitably, some realistic elements or real elements are creeping in there, but they're composites. You know, they're they're drawn from one person or one you know set of political leanings or another and, and melded together in that way. How much do you have to know about what actual spies do? I mean, we know Le Carré does, but is it something you sort of research or want, or do you just make it up out of whole cloth in the way Anne Banks used to? Make it up out of whole cloth, really. I mean, I've read, uh, I'm a huge admirer of Le Carré, I've read all his books, you know, I, I watched Spooks, yeah. So there's, we're all drawing on that kind of fiction kitty that's there and available, anybody who's, you know, immersed themselves in this stuff in any way. But the rest of it I just, I just make up because... What I'm really writing about, in a sense, are, are people working in an office. They happen to be spies, but perhaps the more important thing about them is that they're ordinary Londoners, by and large, who live here and go to work in the morning and worry about you know, the rent or the mortgage or whatever in the same way that, uh, that other people do. So there's that. And also, I know from experience and also from simple observation that large organisations tend to be dysfunctional. And, you know, the Secret Service is a large organisation, so I assume there's a huge amount of dysfunction of one sort or another goes on there. So I, I write about that, but that's just from, you know, the awareness of what what the working life is like. It's not awareness of what a spy's life is like. Do you think of yourself as a comic novelist? Because there is a sort of blend of, of human observation and comedy. And I think there's a great deal of humour in the books. I didn't set out to do that when I started. What I discovered quite early on in Slow Horses, really, as soon as I started writing it, was that I'd found the voice that I had never found in the, in the previous novels. I'm very proud of my earlier books, but they're, they're different, they're tonally different. Writing Slow Horses, I found what felt to me like the appropriate way 
of telling the stories about these characters that I had to tell. And that just involved a lot of black humour, partly because of the lives these people are living, which is largely one of thwarted ambition and, and frustration of one sort or another. So they're inevitably going to be snarky with each other and the, and the best way of putting that onto the page, I think, is through humour. And also because I found that writing about politics brought out the cynic in me. I mean, I think that the tone of the books is far more cynical than I as a person am. You know, the narrative voice is as much a, of a character as, as Jackson Lamb is. And the tone of that narrative voice is one of deep cynicism and suspicion and the expectation that everybody is in it for themselves. If does, it, does worldview kind of come with a, with a spy set-up? I mean... I guess. I guess it does. I mean, most of the writers you think of who are most allied to the field, like Le Carre or someone like Graham Greene, I mean, you can see that these people have a very definite worldview, which is there in all their novels. So I guess that's true. And for me, yeah, cynicism is, is largely what uh, drives it. The other thing I did want to ask you about was there's a sort of slap-happy quality with which occasionally you'll kill off your apparently main characters does that just go with the territory, or is that something that you thought, you know, you need to, you need the reader not to be confident that we're going to have the same guy in the next... A lot of it is that. I mean, I do find that once you've killed off a couple of main characters, you can put any of your characters in jeopardy, and the reader will not be sure that they're going to come out of it all right. So that, that matters a great deal. When it started, I mean, when I did the first major bumping off of a character, the essential reason was I wanted to write about grief. I thought, if I get rid of this character, then that is going to impact on the others, and that is an emotion I want to write about, because they are novels. There are people in them, and, you know, these people feel different things. So grief was something that I wanted to explore in fiction. So that was essentially the reason. It does mean that there tends to be spoilers, in a way, because I don't kill off a character and then nobody ever mentions them again. So characters in later books who are no longer no longer yeah. there are referred to so if you read the books in the wrong order you'll be aware that you know yes, you can uh, read the books i mean i think you give enough information so you can read them out of order but you want i'd to like to think so order, yes really. but because character development is important and you can't just write people out and have them never referred to again there there are those kind of spoilers will occur if the books are read out of order but you know don't know that put anybody off obviously also you, you sort of have, have to fill them up with empty chairs don't you because you've got i mean one of your stylistic works is that each of the novels seems to begin most of the time with a with a sort of geographical tour of Slough House, one way or another, be it an imaginary cat or the dawn rising or whatever it is, you know, you go from room to room. Indeed, indeed. I did this in uh, the first book simply, be- well, I was largely drawing on the opening of Bleak House for that one, I would, you know, the fog coming through London, and I liked the way you could take... In Dickens' case, you know, he took the fog and used it as a vehicle to uh, to get him through the various descriptive passages. So I wanted to do something a bit like that. And I found, having done it once, I thought, well, yeah, I'll obviously do it for the second one. And now I can't do anything else, you know. Now I have to find new ways of, uh, of doing the same thing, essentially, for all of my introductory um, scene settings. Do you see the, the series, I mean, is it indefinite? It kind of is. I mean, I'm writing one at the moment. I think I'll do something different after that, but I will return to it, yes, because the other thing about killing characters off is, although I do do that, that does mean that I introduce new characters a lot of the time as well. I mean, there's this character churn, which means that I'm forever, you know, having new people to write about, which keeps the interest going. I wouldn't want to write about the same character over and over again without variation. No, but you've got your, your, your new characters... Just sits there in a hoodie listening to music most of the time. He's a very indeed, kind. indeed. He's the guy who um, is 
does seem to be discovering psychopathic tendencies within himself. What worries me is that I've given him more of my own personal characteristics than I have any of the other characters. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly his taste in music and that sort of thing are, are all far more close to me. Yeah, I've got the feeling we're going to hear, hear more from him as time goes on. And, indeed, yes. Also, I should, should ask, because you're you know, writing popular fiction, are they being filmed? There is... I'm, I'm not really at liberty to give any details about it, but yes, there is a TV series in development and movement is, is happening on that front. Fingers crossed for it. Nick Heron, thank you very much. Thank you, Sam. And I'd like to make you aware of a brand new subscription offer we've got going for anyone who admires the great writer Stephen Pinker. For just £12, you can subscribe to The Spectator for three months, receive a copy of Mr Pinker's new book, Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism and Progress, and tickets to see him in discussion with me, Sam Leith, at a special Spectator event this February.